Welcome to the podcast that gives you more than your standard edition conversations. You're listening to The Encore. Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Encore. I am here with my first guest, Dr. Mazna. Dr. Mazna is an assistant professor in the College of Interdisciplinary Studies at Zayed University, Dubai. She is a community psychologist with a bursting passion for teaching uh, community psychology, research methods, and statistics. Hello, Dr. Mazna. Hi, Mariam. Thanks for having me as your <laughs> first guest. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Um, tell us about yourself. So there's a lot I could share, um, but generally I was born and raised in a suburb outside of Chicago in the United States. Um, I won't go into my childhood because that would probably take days, so I'll speed it up a bit. Um, I completed my bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology at DePaul University. Um, I was really drawn to DePaul because it's rooted in Vincentian values, which to me is about producing knowledge to serve the larger community. And throughout my life, community has always been a really important aspect. And at DePaul, I got to learn more about not just about the communities I'm part of, like the Muslim American community, but also other communities like other racial minorities and people with disabilities. And then related to this, um, I have a love for travel and exploring different cultures. And so um, when I finished my master's, I joined the United States Peace Corps. Um, so I served there for two years in Ukraine. Um, and so I worked as a university lecturer and living in Ukraine really helped me better understand systems and how challenging it is to create change beyond the individual level. And so this was really an important part in my life where I was like, okay, I need to pursue my PhD to better understand this because I really wanted to be a part of making social change to create an equitable world for all people. Um, and so I did my PhD at Portland State University. Um, and then I joined the tenure track at Governor State University, which is just outside of Chicago. And then a few years later in 2019, I joined Zayed University here in Dubai. Yes, and I was in your first class. <laughs> yes, yeah, that yeah. January, um, <laughs> you were in my applied psychology class. Yeah, and it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember having you in there and you were just so excited to just talk about how we can apply psych to the UAE and like this yeah. larger region. So, yeah, it, it was awesome. very interesting, a very, very interesting subject. And did, so did you always know that community psychology was the way for you? Um, I don't think I always knew. Um, so I started out undergrad actually thinking I wanted to major maybe in chemistry or maybe do pre-med. Mm -hmm. um, 
I have like a weird fascination with popping pimples. <laughs> it sounds really crazy, but like people who watch those YouTube videos on like yeah. pimple popping, oh, that's me. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about pimples that kind of excited me and it's okay. always been like a thing. Um, and like I've never been really turned off by like blood and things like that. So I was like, maybe I should become a doctor. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bizarre. <laughs> Um, but then when I got to undergrad, um, so at DePaul, we got to choose from like, gosh, tons of electives. And I was like, let me just try psychology. It sounds like a really interesting area. To be honest, I didn't know much about it when I took that intro to psych class. Um, but there was something interesting about it that just kind of pulled me in. Like, I really wanted to know more about people and kind of understanding myself a little bit as yeah. well. Um, so like for me as a college student, it was like the first time I was on my own. I was like 18 years old, moved out of my parents' house. Um, I had a ton of autonomy that I was trying to assert, right, and becoming independent and um, kind of exploring who I am and my new surrounding. Um, so yeah, psychology kind of pulled me in. I really, um, it kind of fulfilled this gap that I was trying to explore and understand. Yeah. Um, but I would say that I really kind of got pulled into community psychology when I took my first community psychology course. So um, so at DePaul, we took a bunch of electives. Um, so I took like a class on like, I think uh, popular Chinese religion. I took one on like- Oh, cool. Yeah, I took one on like exploring like, the city of Chicago. It's like a explore Chicago class. And we learned okay. about the stock market which was kind of fascinating. Yeah, I still don't understand anything about the stock market. <laughs> to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot, but it was fascinating at the time. Yeah. Um, but I also took um, a bunch of different courses on different areas in psychology. So we learned about statistics, research methods, personality, social, etc. And then there was this class called community psychology. And I didn't really know what I was getting into when I got into the course, but I feel like maybe the first class I had, I was hooked. Like it changed mm -hmm. my world. Um, there was so much that excited me. So early on, I remember learning about how, one, there aren't enough psychologists to meet every person's needs. And there are a lot of folks who can't even access one-on-one -on -one counseling. And so that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like I get that access is a really important aspect of our lives when it comes to a variety of things. Um, but then I also learned about how clinical and counseling are really focused on the individual level. So imagine a person goes through counseling to work on anxiety that they're dealing with. And the anxiety is really stemming from a lifetime of discrimination. So the counseling may attempt to help the person cope with that anxiety, but once they leave that counseling session, they go right back into the world that continues to discriminate against them. And so community psychology is saying, well, so at a beginning level, yes, we do need to provide counseling services to help people kind of deal with that trauma, yeah. but we really need to move beyond and look at larger systems and think about how we can change those systems. So that really got me hooked. I was like, yes, I want yeah. more of this. It's really important to recognize that whenever there is some kind of issue, um, it is deep-rooted beyond the individual. So what do you think perpetuates that so if you look at each individual and you work on them individually 
you would say that okay this person is good this person is good or this person believes in equality or this person has a good moral compass or we're working on trauma with this person but then as a system it's not working out so what do you think allows that to continue like the varieties in which people are experiencing different environments is that what you mean yeah um, so I think that's just a function of society working for some people. And I really do think that society is built for certain people and not mm -hmm. for others. And so we see people who might go through trauma um, while someone right next to them might be thriving in that situation. Yeah. And I think it's really about who the space we're in is designed for. Yeah. So can you tell us for the people or the listeners who don't know exactly what community psychology is, can you give us a brief description? Yeah. Um, so to me, well, community psychology is a lot of things. <laughs> to me personally, it's really about um, looking at behavior as the function of both the person and their environment. Um, so we can't just look at the person and say, okay, we need to change the people while keeping the environment just as is. People interact with their environments and that is what kind of leads to the behaviors that we see in society. And community psychology is trying to look at that person or that behavior by also looking at multiple levels that we're kind of embedded in. So the individual level, um, maybe at the family unit, maybe the larger community then, um, and then maybe even like the larger city and then other systems that might operate in which the person kind of lives in. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to look at those multiple layers and really thinking about how do we create systems like communities, and that can be organizations, neighborhoods. Um, it doesn't even have to be a physical space that we share. It could be an online community. How do we make these communities stronger so that all individuals thrive? And it's not just about the majority of the people living in these communities, it's everyone. So a lot of community psychologists um, focus in on marginalized groups or sociopolitical minorities like people with intellectual disabilities, um, indigenous folks, African-Americans or black people. Um, so a variety of groups um, that have been historically and currently marginalized by our systems and finding ways to um, address that oppression or that white supremacy or whatever it might be that's applicable in that context to really create meaningful change so that everyone thrives. Yeah. Um, so from your personal life, do you recall any formative experiences that shaped the way that you think about systems or politics? So this is a really interesting question. Um, I feel like I could write a book on this because there are so many instances um, that have played such an important role at a really young age for me that informed how I thought about my position and how I think the world perceived me. Um, so I feel like at a really young age, the world seemed to constantly want to tell me what my position in life should be. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of a background about myself. So my parents immigrated to the United States from Pakistan. 
my dad grew up with very little resources and he takes great pride in the fact that he worked through numerous challenges as an immigrant to be as successful as he is. However, when he came to the United States, people did not know where Pakistan is. As a side note, even when I was growing up, no one knew where Pakistan oh, really? was. Yeah, I think it was when I got to high school, 9-11 happened, and that's when people figured out where Pakistan was. So most of my life, people were like, Pakistan? Where is that? You know? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was kind of... So, but anyway, um, they understood that he was not white, but they also acknowledged that he was not black. And that made him better. And so while he faced many challenges as an immigrant, as a Pakistani, as a Muslim, his proximity to whiteness helped him be successful. And I remember him sharing the story with me at a young age, and it really kind of resonated. And I thought back to that conversation so many times throughout my life because his proximity to whiteness really played an important role for our family. How interesting that you were exposed to that at such a young age and you understood that since you were in school that being closer to white would get you further in life. Yeah, so there's like a safety aspect to it, you know? And like even when 9-11 happened, I remember some of like the Muslim families in our area kind of talking about like, oh, like, you know, my daughter might be considering wearing the hijab. Maybe we should tell her to wait a little bit because the more we kind of blend in to this dominant society helps us feel a little bit safer, right? That's so sad. It was really sad. that, you know, what I hear and see in movies or media about the United States, that it's all about, you know, liberation and living your life. And, like, to me, living your life means... You know, if you want to wear the hijab, you should be able to without judgment. Well, yeah, definitely. And I'd say that the United States is so big that I think that if you talk to maybe some other Muslim Americans, they might say, actually, I lived in a pretty, um, you know, open-minded community. And even though 9-11 happened, we might have felt more welcome. And so I think that there's a wide variety of experiences. And it might also depend on, like, where exactly in the U.S. they're from. Yeah. Um, but I think suburban America was a bit, uh, I think that they were quite confused about, you know, who we were. Because, like, you know, we were, I feel like, in, pretty integrated into our community. And I love and happened. And people started to kind of look at us a little differently. Um, and I think that it was just a bit, uh, I think it was a function of their lack of knowledge and understanding, you know. But I think over time that has generally kind of changed. Not entirely, but yeah. slightly. <laughs> Um, But then at a more personal level, um, I learned at a really young age that whiteness and proximity to whiteness was important to many people around me. So, for example, I have an older sister who is fair-skinned, and she's considered more European-looking. And I could say that since I was super young, I don't remember how young, but I've always remembered consistently being compared to my sister for being dark skin and being both directly and indirectly told that I was less than for being darker. And as I grew older, I think maybe around high schoolish time, I realized that people around me were dealing with internalized racism 
And South Asia has this history of colonization that has really shaped the lives of many South Asians today. Um, and so I think that this is, you know, this was, you know, the 90s and 80s, but I still think that these issues of having lighter skin are things that the South Asian community continues to grapple with. At the same time, though, I also knew that my social class and my proximity to whiteness helped me. So living in an affluent community with successful South Asians, like a lot of our family friends were doctors or really successful, they were lawyers. For me, that meant that I had access to the best school systems and I generally felt supported by both people and systems with regard to my excitement for learning. So it has helped me as well. It's very interesting to hear how you have been introduced to the whole idea of systems and the whole idea of, you know, race. It's just so pivotal and uh, like awareness is so, so important. And I feel like a lot of people or adults even don't even have that awareness. So even though some things are very very sad that happened i feel like being aware of it is at least made you out to be you know the activist that you are today yeah but i mean i think sometimes people may have the awareness and they may shy away from talking about it yeah so for example i mean if you think about the uae like being at Zayed University teaching, you know, Emirati women. Um, I remember being in uh, my social psychology class and we were talking about um, like social expectations. And, you know, most of our college students here are like women who are like, you know, going to get married soon or they're recently got married. And they talked about how like there was a time when like the Kardashians became really popular and they felt some sort of pressure to like have the long hair, have the lighter skin. Um, and we're in a society where, you know, women are all shades of brown here, right? Um, and so this is something that I think people all over the world kind of experience, but they may not necessarily talk about yeah. it. I think it is important to talk about it. I think it's, you know, just talking about it makes you feel like you're heard and it makes you feel like, okay, maybe the problem isn't with me. Maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe I am, I am enough the way that I am and not change based on um, media or what's popular at the time. <laughs> Because these things are always changing, especially standards of beauty, for example, always, always changing, like by the decade. So it's impossible, impossible to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there are even times when people are like, oh, dark skin is better. Like that is beautiful, like that bronzy gold look, right? So yeah, these things do evolve. And you're just thinking like, who decides that? Like who's deciding what's beautiful and what's not? Can you share some of the work that you have done around community psychology? Yeah, so um, as a community psychologist, one of the things that really excites me is participatory work. So a few years ago, I worked on a participatory research study 
with some Special Olympics Pakistan athletes. So for those listeners out there who don't know what the Special Olympics is, please go Google them. They're amazing. Um, so it's the Olympics for people with intellectual disabilities. It's an amazing organization um, that's really focused on creating social change for people with intellectual disabilities. So I work with Special Olympics Pakistan athletes and their guardians. And so I had my interest in what I wanted to learn from them. Um, but as a community psychologist, I have learned I need to listen and remember that I am not the expert. So my training has helped me gather tools to help me do things. And I offer these tools to the communities I work with to help them meet their needs and wants. So what happened was in the study, the Special Olympics Pakistan athletes and their guardians used focus groups to unpack how they are using the Special Olympics Pakistan to create social change and how they would like to move forward to create a better community for all Pakistanis with intellectual disabilities. They were also involved in the publication for this work. So we took these focus groups that were audio recorded, we analyzed them, and we presented them in peer-reviewed journals. Um, And I had to go through the process of maintaining the participatory nature of our relationship and also pleasing the peer reviewers for the (laughs) papers. Um, And so kind of balancing those needs and making sure that I stayed true to their voice and respected their, their involvement Um, was a really important part of the work that I do, but something that I really love as well. What does representation mean to you, and why do you think it's valuable to be represented? So this is a really tough one, Um, and this is a question that I really grapple with quite often. I think about it pretty regularly. Um, So at a basic level, it requires having stakeholders at the table and being able to inform policies and practices that impact their day-to-day life. But I always have to ask myself who the space I am in is for. For example, when I did the study with the athletes from Special Olympics Pakistan, it was exciting that we had people with intellectual disabilities and some had an intellectual disability and another disability. Mm-hmm. So for example, one of our participants was a person who has an intellectual disability and she also used sign language to communicate throughout the research process. Okay. But what I still think about today is, what about the people who didn't volunteer to participate in the study? Did they feel like they couldn't engage maybe in the time that I kind of set forth? Mm -hmm. Did they feel like they may not have been able to communicate in the way that they thought I expected them to? Um, Was there something else that I was doing that maybe put forth people who are labeled, quote unquote, high functioning at the table? Um, And so I think that there's... I feel like there might have been a group of people there that I missed, maybe people who would not necessarily be able to keep up with a conversation within a focus group. And maybe I could have said some folks could do individual interviews with me and I could talk to them one on one so that they have the time to kind of work through stuff. And um, it can be challenging to sit with a group of like 10 people and keep up with the conversation, right? Yeah. And so I often think about, like, who was not at that table? Like, whose representation were we missing? And I thought a lot more about this when I co-wrote a paper on on the concept of safe space. And so 
Safe spaces are used to create social change. It's a space that's separate from the dominant culture and it creates opportunities for communities to mobilize. But the space can also be regressive where hierarchies of marginalization are recreated within this so-called safe space. So we are a function of this larger society and system that we work in. And so if we try to create an alternative space, we can sometimes recreate the hierarchies and marginalizations that we see in broader society within this so-called alternative setting. So that's something that I constantly kind of think through. But at a personal level, I think about representation, particularly for my daughters. So I am of South Asian descent, so I'm South Asian American. Um, although I, I like to identify as Muslim American more so. Um, and my husband is a black Kenyan. Um, so our kids are mixed. They're also pretty young, so most of their day is spent at school. And I really, really wish that they could see black teachers, black administrators, and even more families that are black in their day-to-day -day life. For me, I know that the society I live in was not built for me, but I feel a sense of belonging within the South Asian or the Muslim community. But I don't think my children get to experience that same sense of belonging. What makes you feel that they feel that way? I mean, I don't think they're represented. I, I can't think of a single black teacher that I've seen. Um, you know, one day my daughter pointed out when we were going to school, like the people that look like her are the security guards, you really? know. She pointed that out? Yeah. How old is she? She's six. Oh. Yeah. I mean, so she doesn't always see that. Like she had an experience with racism and she was like, take my skin off. I want to be white. Oh, my God. And... I was like, wait, no, like your skin is beautiful. And she was like, I don't see people who are beautiful, like that look like me. And so I think that that representation is really important. Um, I know that for me growing up in the US, I didn't get to see um, people who were my skin color. And in fact, I've actually remember wishing that I was white too when I was young. Um, and it, so it's really painful to see my daughter experienced that as well. And so there continues to be a lack of representation for, I think, women of color. Yeah, I think representation is very, very important. And I think people who have um, privilege don't recognize that people go through that. So, I, you know, a, a white girl would never think that, oh, I want to take off my skin or someone who's skinny would never think that oh i'm not being represented or i might not find my size um in this clothing brand so i guess y it's difficult to think about when you're not actually experiencing it and i'm really glad that and thank you for sharing what your daughter is going through because it's it's really eye-opening um what people are going through when they are not represented. Yeah, and I also want to add that sometimes these issues can kind of come up to the surface and organizations and even individuals, they'll try to kind of act on it, but it oftentimes, at least in my opinion, I think it's oftentimes more performative. 
So it's at the surface level. They're not genuinely, genuinely interested in supporting the cause. So for example, you know, an organization might post on social media about social movements, but they'll do nothing to put a real effort toward advancing that social movement. So it's like to tick a box. Like, okay, yes, we've, we've represented people, and that's... Exactly, yeah. So do you think it would ever be possible to create a system that does not oppress any particular group of people? And if you were to create your own idyllic society, what foundations do you think would be the most essential? So I want to be positive. I want to be um, optimistic yeah. and say that yes, we can create a system that does not oppress any particular group. Um, but I like to think about it by understanding first order and second order change. So. First order change is change at the individual level, where we're kind of working within the existing structure to make a change. So for example, um, imagine we are looking at a residential facility for people with disabilities. Um, employee John um, is not treating the residents well. Um, instead of working with John to figure out what's happening, doing some maybe inner work, um, better training, better understanding of their actions. John is oftentimes just transferred to another facility, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a very superficial change. It's like, oh, look, we solved the problem. It looks all cute and tidy now, right? Um, and in some cases, first order change can be important, like providing counseling services when people are in crisis, right? It's not changing a system, it's working kind of within what we have, and that can be important. But then second order change is changing social systems, so changing assumptions and using a different worldview. So this really requires breaking everything apart and starting fresh. However, I think that this may work best when you have a single cause to your problem. Mm. And so I think that this would require us to dismantle the system entirely and build a brand new foundation. But that foundation needs to be something that is completely different from what we know. And so when you ask me what foundation would be most essential, I would be, I would, I don't know what that specific foundation would be, but I think an essential component is we have to imagine what we do not know. Okay. Like when I think about, okay, so imagine, like I like to think about um, this like Legos. Okay, so like, You've got a box of Legos, and you can build a whole city pretty much with Legos, right? Yeah. So you kind of build the foundation, which is that, like, use that, that like, large square piece. Yeah. <laughs> and then you slowly build on it to kind of create the city. Now, if we dismantle all of it, how do we start to build it? Like, how do we use our imagination to think through something so different that it's nothing like we currently have? So it might not even resemble a city. It might look completely different. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what that would mean. I mean, I think if maybe if we had like a small city that we could just, or small island that we can kind of recreate. <laughs> like lost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, we could kind of recreate something there. But um, at a global level or at like a larger country level, I don't know. I still grapple with that. Yeah. Like, what does that look like? How do we get people to see the humanity of others? You know what I find so interesting? How I feel like systems or hierarchies kind of breed themselves. So even in places where it's not, say, necessary, for example, friend groups, you would find some friend groups where there are hierarchies or you know, like the TV show Lost, um, they were all, for all they knew, you know, they were all on the same boat, same island, everyone was equal at that point in time, and there were still hierarchies. So I, I wonder if it's just natural for humans to do that, if it's easier, if it just makes sense for people to be leaders and people to be followers and just live life that way or is it that we're just taught it at such a young age that yeah. it's like what we know and what we feel comfortable with yeah maybe even though you know problems come out of it we just lean towards that absolutely <laughs> and i wonder like when those problems do come up who are those problems for and how are those dealt with right yeah i think that's a big part of understanding why some of these systems thrive the way they do yeah interesting <laughs> um how do you think we can foster people's awareness of their privileges and do you think that people can use their privilege to advocate for a better society so this has really been a process for me so my needs and the needs of my family members are not met so I personally engage in constant learning and listening to various sources. And then I take action. So as an American, I get to vote. So I haven't lived in the United States for a while now, but I always make sure I have my absentee ballot and that I have that ballot ready when I can vote. Um, and so having my voice heard um, in that regard is really important to me. Um, and so I have the privilege of voting and I try to make really informed decisions about what I think is best for um, my community, my people um, when I vote. But I also think that people need to do some inner work because I constantly hear white folks say things like, I don't see racism, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or I don't see people with disabilities. They're not there, you know? Um, and because they are a part of it, like a white person saying, I don't see racism, they're a part of it. I don't think they can fully see how whiteness operates. So maybe the question is, how do we get people to start doing the work? I think it will take, I think it'll take systems forcing people to change. And I say this as I think back to the in incidents where my eldest daughter came home from school telling me that her teacher made a comment about our hair. So my daughter was four years old at the time. She has this beautiful 
black curly hair. And she could not understand why the teacher made this comment about our hair being big. And I tried incredibly hard to address this with the teacher, who simply ignored me, and the school, which really did not see a problem with anti-blackness. So when a four-year-old is being told she is less than because her hair, and the school sees that as normal, I don't know if we can force change. It doesn't mean I'll stop trying. <laughs> but I think that it means that we need larger systems that might force people yeah, to kind of say, this is unacceptable. I'm really, really shocked to hear that. Like, I can't believe a four-year-old has to experience something like that. That must be so, so difficult. And for the school to not see a problem with it. Yeah, and then and then you wonder why, you know, this type of mentality just continues and continues. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, this is something that I think kids face around the world. Um, but I remember my parents um, growing up when we heard, you know, racist comments um, about our race, our religion. They'd always be like, oh, forget about them. Like, they don't mean anything. You define who you are. And so I always try to tell my kids, you define who you are. This world will always try to put a label on you, will always try to put you into a box. And you just have to ignore it. You have to do what you need to do to just keep moving forward, yeah. you know. Um, and that applies to, you know, race, uh, disability status, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I'm really, really glad that you're telling them that. And they, they do deserve to, you know, live in a world where they feel amazing and they feel capable and they feel that they can thrive as much as anyone so i really hope things change i hope so too i mean I'm, I'm constantly trying and i think for me what's kind of exciting working at a university is that um university students are excited to have these types of conversations about things that are different things that um that they see in the world that they may not fully understand and we kind of unpack those things um and college students tend to be a lot more open <laughs> to different ideas. So that kind of helps as well. But I really hope that when students leave my classroom that they kind of see the world a little bit differently. Yeah. And actually try to make a change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So if you were to integrate any subject in schools, what would it be and why? Ha. Huh. <laughs> so... I have two answers for this. So my first suggestion would be not a subject, but I would say less technology use. But when technology is used, it has to be intentional. And I think I really kind of um, saw this coming to light when I transferred to the College of Interdisciplinary Studies. So when I started at Zayed University, in 2019, I started out in the College of Natural Health and Sciences in the psychology department. And so that was pre-COVID. Our classes were face-to-face. -face. Um, although everyone bought their laptop, they had like slides or whatever medium we were using to kind of go through content. Um, but laptops were used for pretty much everything, right? Yeah. Um, and then when I moved to the College of Interdisciplinary Studies, we 
so our classes, we've got some that are face to face, like these lab components, mm-hmm. and then we have something called Forum. So Forum is a platform um, that ZU uses, or sorry, the College of Interdisciplinary Study uses, um, and it's amazing. So the platform is built using evidence based practice, um, and so everything we do is really intentional on there. And I actually feel like I connect more with my students professionally on forum than I did face-to-face. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I really think that taps into how well they use technology. So using the technology for the sake of using it, to me, just seems useless now, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, And so having that intentionality and really having all aspects of this forum being rooted in evidence... I think really makes it successful. And I feel like students actually leave every session knowing a lot and being able to apply it. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, the traditional face-to-face classroom setting. Yeah. So that that's one, one suggestion I would make about schools. Um, but if I were to ing- integrate an actual subject, I would say mindfulness. I think we all need to stop <laughs> And just be with ourselves and not do anything. And I don't mean like once a day where we all kind of pause. But like, so for example, if it's like a, you know, an elementary school, like having a space where kids just kind of sit or lay down for like 15 minutes, maybe every two or three hours and just do nothing. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I thought about this a while back because I recently deleted a bunch of apps on my phone um, I really wanted to get a dumb phone because I felt like my smartphone was like taking over my life and I was becoming useless um, in ways that just I that didn't align with my values. Um, and so I deleted a bunch of stuff. And as a result, I just don't look at my phone that much. I use it, you know, to get Google Maps <laughs> if I want to go somewhere new or listen to a podcast on Spotify or something. Um, but I don't use it that much. And so I find that, like, even when I'm walking down the halls on campus or even at the mall, the grocery store, my face is not in front of my phone. And I'm looking at people. And when I look at people, they get really uncomfortable and then they pull their phone out. Oh, my God. That's me. (laughs) It's it's so interesting, though, because I'm like, oh, man, people forgot how to connect with one another. Mm. You know, they forgot how to, like, connect and, like, look at each other and say, like, hello or... You know, like the yeah. connection is being lost. Sometimes in public, if um, like I want to avoid these people in the kiosks, I pretend to speak on the phone. <laughs> it's really bad, but <laughs> I think we've all done that a few times. <laughs> Those kiosk folks are pretty good salesmen. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I could totally see that happening. Um, but yeah, I, I, our noses are always kind of like stuck in front of these screens, and yeah. it's. Um, it's really strange how people have like kind of lost this ability mm-hmm. to just be present. I think that that would be a very, very valuable subject. Um, I think if we were taught that, we're taught to be with ourselves. I think I was even telling my mom the other day 
that why is it so difficult for me to hang out with myself to just be alone with myself you know I have a day where I don't have anything planned and I just find it so difficult and it's just dreadful (laughs) so I think it's really important for us to learn to be with ourselves without technology even um But I think the technology, more than anything, is the stimulation and how fast you're receiving information. And I think that's just exciting. So whenever you want to hit off anything, there it is in front of you. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what makes it so addicting. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of feel like it just numbs us Mm. to where, like we just lose so much of our like of us and our humanness Mm. we're just scrolling scrolling (laughs) it's like we're not learning anything yeah like if you if now i scroll for about 10 minutes and you asked me what i saw i i have no idea (laughs) i'm just sitting there scrolling yeah it's an addiction it really (laughs) is an addiction it's so painful like even when I, I remember when I when I deleted the Facebook app on my phone, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of painful because it's yeah. kind of fun to yeah. just scroll, you know." <laughs> but I was like, "No, I'm like, it's not good for my mental health, <laughs> and I need to just not do this at so all." So did you download it again? No, I didn't. I da- oh, really? I removed everything. So so before the pandemic started, I was like, "Okay, I need to order like a dumb phone," and then the pandemic happened, and then. Everything the UAE, came online. Yeah, everything came yeah. online. But in the UAE, what I really love is the Al Hosan app. I think it's like <laughs> the best thing ever. It's, yeah. it's probably like the coolest app out there. So for those who like are not in the UAE, it's this amazing app that um, tracks your PCRs and I think your vaccination status. Yeah, I might be missing neat. something, but yeah. it's really cool. Like it has a QR code. It's really fancy, and it allows you to. And you can add passes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they had the expo pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I think you needed to be, like, vaccinated or have a PCR yeah. for expo. Yeah, so it was, it's just a really amazing app. And so I was like, okay, I'm like, I have to use Al Hosin. It's an amazing app that's quite effective. So I'm going to keep my smartphone, but I'm just going to delete everything. <laughs> um, and it was a bit, like, weird, but, like, it was kind of liberating really? at the same time. Like, inside of me, I was like... But, like, I love keeping in touch with people who I don't see on a day-to-day basis. Mm. But to be honest, Mariam, I call people now. I'm like, let's Zoom. Like, I have people in my life who I don't necessarily connect with on a daily basis. But I'm like, hey, let's set up a quick Zoom chat. Or how about I call you after work and we just kind of catch up. That sounds so nice. Yeah. like now that I'm reflecting I barely text like even my close friends it could take three to five business days for a response and I don't know why like it it feels you know like oh my god I have to respond to this person or it's taking so long it's not instant anymore which is so ironic because that's the whole purpose of a chat or having a phone or technology is that it's mobile and easy and fast and here I am taking forever yeah because we're just so overwhelmed by technology but I mean you and I did it so like before we talked about you know doing this podcast 
um, you came to campus to visit me. Yeah. You know, and we got to like connect and like. It was really nice. Yeah. It was (laughs) just nice to like hear about like what you've done since you graduated and like the amazing things that you've been thinking about in terms of your um, coursework and applying it into the real world. Yeah. (laughs) And so like that, I think are like, those are really valuable moments. Mm. Um, And you leave going like, wow, you know, I enjoyed, you know, today was a good day or that conversation was meaningful. So, (laughs) yeah, I actually like I actually um, contacted um, one of my colleagues from psychology. I was like, I met Margam. I was like, it was the coolest (laughs) experience. I was like, it was so nice to like just get like that breath of fresh air from you. Like you were just it was so nice to hear what you were doing, but not on like a WhatsApp. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I'm so glad we did that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like I have those valuable connections without technology. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> that's so nice. Um, so what could the listeners of this podcast do to advocate for positive change in their community? So I think at a really basic level, I would say go out in your community and meet the people you don't know. And build a relationship with these people. Build a relationship with people who are different from you. So Mm -hmm. if there's someone with a disability out in your community, go talk to them. If there's an elderly person who maybe is a widow, go chat, you know. Listen to them. And try to always use the platinum rule as you live your life. So the platinum rule, and people often want to say, no, no, it's the golden rule. No, I'm talking about the platinum rule. So treat people the way they want to be treated. Okay. Yeah. So like for at a really simple level, when I go to my friend's house, I don't want them to offer me bacon or pork. I want them yeah. to treat me the way I want to be treated. Offer me a non-pork dish, right? Yeah. Um, Or if, you know, someone wants to buy me lunch, don't pick what you think you want or you think that I would want. Let me pick, you know, like, let me, let me kind of have that choice. Let me choose how I am treated. Mm. And I think that's really important for us to make changes. We have to listen to people. We have to understand not just their needs, but their wants as well. And we need to follow through on them and really respect their experience. Yeah, I think that's something really, really really valuable and that people often don't think about because we often have certain ways of living and certain rules and we only allow people to enter our lives or expose ourselves to certain communities that match the way we are and if you have an intention to discover new things or meet new people that are completely different from you of course you have to you know uh, live differently or make adjustments or changes in order to understand how these people live exactly And I actually had a student ask me about this. And she was like, how do you do it? She's like, I'm so scared about making mistakes or offending someone. And I'm like, 
you just have to do it, you know? And the thing is, is that like make mistakes. If you're making a genuine mistake and you're trying to get to know someone and really understand their experience, I don't think they're going to be really offended. They're going to say, okay, wait, Mazda, mm-hmm. stop. Let me explain this to you. And you have to listen yeah. and engage in reflexivity. So for example, if we did this podcast and we asked each other the same exact questions, <laughs> Five months from now, I'm hoping that my answers would be really different because that would indicate that I've grown and I've learned and I'm constantly engaging in this process of growth. And so we are constant learners Mm. and making mistakes is part of the process. Our job is to grow from it and continue to listen. Yeah. I have this memory of uh, me in school and uh, our teachers were all Western So we would get so excited when they would ask us questions about our culture or religion. And we would explain why we were the Shela. We would um, share certain foods with them and we'd be so happy and they would wear it. And um, on UAE National Day, they they would do the henna and they would come and abai us. And it was just so exciting for us. So I feel like um it could work both ways like the same way i was exposed to you know these teachers or these role models taking part in my culture um it could be meaningful for me to take part in other cultures as well (laughs) absolutely and it doesn't always have to be all the good stuff yeah people will be willing over time to share some of their pain. Yeah. So when like my daughter experienced that racism, I sought out black families at that school and I was like, have you experienced this? And people were like, oh yeah. Oh. And they were really open to sharing their experiences. And I think that there was some level of relief on all of our parts that like, yeah, like it's not us. It's, this larger system that's really painful yeah and that's what's so sad especially when you're a child you think that the problem is with you and that you have to change and you don't realize that there is something a whole lot bigger than you that's making you feel this way exactly yes yeah (laughs) uh i have one final question um doesn't have to be psychology related uh so i love time travel okay and i believe in it but anyway that's (laughs) not the question (laughs) the question is if you could go back in time or forward into the future where and when would you go and why Ooh, (laughs) that is really fascinating um So a part of me wants to say I would love to like move ahead a hundred years from now and kind of see where society is Mm -hmm. um, and see if we've actually done kind of the work to really change society for for better. Um, But I wonder if I could like steal all the information that I know now and go back in time (laughs) Yeah, don't we all wish? Yeah, and, like, change things. Like, I mean, there were some, like, so growing up, um, I loved Malcolm X. So Malcolm Mm -hmm. X is a black man. He was Muslim. And so seeing a Muslim for me 
um, who was a prominent figure was like a huge deal. I remember um, in school we had to um, dress up as someone famous in history and like tell our story, and I was Malcolm X. Oh, no way. Yeah. You have a picture, you have to show I me. don't. <laughs> it was like in fourth grade, and it was like the best thing ever, but like it goes to show that like there just weren't that many Muslim figures. Yeah. But I was really excited. Um, about him and his life and learning about his life and kind of understanding that there were other Muslims who were American and they dealt with struggles and they they worked really hard to kind of change things for people. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali, the boxer, was the same, right? Yeah. He really was um, an advocate for change. Um, and so, like, for someone like Malcolm X, I wonder if I could go back in time and say, <laughs> like, don't go here because you're going to get potentially killed, oh, you know, and kind of change history that yeah. way. Because I just, I found him to be such an influential figure. He was incredibly intelligent. Um, and I think that, like, you know, people like him did not deserve to die when they did. Yeah. Um, so I wish I could kind of change some of those things to see if maybe more change could have been made. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. It's, it's such an honor. It was so nice hearing from you and listening about your experiences. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This has been the Encore Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.